This is the Ned Group Investments Podcast, a space where you can learn more about our fund managers, the funds they manage, as well as getting up-to-date and important developments affecting the investment world and how they might be relevant to you. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Ned Group Investments Insights. Today, I have with me Dave Ford. We're going to be speaking to him about the current global situation and its impact on the financial markets. Dave is part of a team of four experienced multi-council portfolio managers responsible for the Ned Group Investment Stable Fund, alongside William Fraser, Darrell Owen and Nick Balkan. Hello, Dave. Thank you very much for joining us today. Hello, Rob. Hello, everybody. Good to be here. So many of you listening will be familiar with this history, but for those who aren't, I just want to spend a couple of minutes giving a bit of background. Talked about this before, but Dave started working in the investment industry at Old Mutual Industrial Analyst back in the 70s. And I think you can agree that there's not many people in our industry today with that level of experience. He ended up founding Ford Asset Management in 81. Again, history that's unrivaled within our industry here in South Africa. And he created Ford with a vision to create a no-nonsense investment house that puts the client's interests first. Building on these roots in South Africa, the firm established its international business in Guernsey in 1997 and expanded into Singapore in 2012 and Luxembourg in 2013 with their offerings there. Dave believes that great investors have a common thread of energy, persistence, hard work and independent thought, importantly. And this is a spirit that is embedded across the firm. Now, with a team of 10 investment professionals sitting in Cape Town alongside him, and a globally focused team based in Singapore. Ford have a wide array of investment strategies and managing a considerable amount of assets for on behalf of their end clients with an ethos of stewardship within the way they manage money. The investment approach applied across all portfolios is driven by a healthy respect for risk and the uncertainty that is ubiquitous within capital markets. This has led to a proven expertise in asset allocation within their local and their global funds, using diversification as an important tool to reduce reliance on a single factor or theme. And it's something that we've seen has benefited our stable fund holders over time. It's also something that Dave and the excellent team at Ford have been doing for investors through time on the stable fund since inception in 2007 producing performance that is unrivaled in the low equity sector. And I'm just hopefully going to bring up a slide for you now for everybody watching. This is the performance of the fund since inception. And you can see that the peer group average there, the fund has outperformed by more than two and a half percent on per annum since inception. And you'll see the fund ranks number one in the sector out of 37 funds since inception. I also like to highlight some of the other rankings there in that third column. 10 years, the fund is ranked one over one out of 49 funds. But then if we look in the last year and year to date, the fund is ranked second out of 150 funds. That's something that we are really proud to partner with Dave and the team on this strategy. Dave believes that it's critical to manage risk and particularly the risk of being wrong. And I, I think this is cannot be more appropriate in the times we find ourselves today. So on that note, I'm going to bring Dave in now and I'm going to ask you, Dave, you know, what do you make of the events that have unfolded over the last nine months? 
And what are you are you able to draw on any experiences that you've had during your career that can help you navigate this current situation? Yeah, there's a lot going on, Rob, and it's a mess. And we've often said that the 50-year flood, when the other 50-year flood comes along every five to seven years, well, this is a, a monster flood of humongous proportion. And it's having lots of impact. And it's not just the COVID, it's the government response to it. And like in any situation, when you get a disruption of whatever nature, it, the weak are the ones who fall over. So in this situation, the strong are getting stronger and the, the weak are falling by the way. But the, the COVID itself, would you like me to give my view on that? Yes, please, Dave. And perhaps, as you mentioned, how, how the uh, authorities around the world have reacted to it. Yeah, it, my take on what's, what's happened is that the, the governments, particularly in the West, listen to their health authority guys who were worried about things being really bad and overwhelming the healthcare system. So they were correct to worry about that, but as it's transpired, it hasn't been that bad and it's just a flu. And we were saying early on, it's probably just a bad flu. And yes, it is a bad flu. And yes, there've been a lot of deaths. But the, the government reaction has been found wanting. And yes, we've got the benefit of hindsight here. But the public are, are quite angry because governments haven't responded properly. The World Health Organization refused to admit it was a pandemic until about March. And you know, what could the government have done? Well, we've got a, we've got a control element in Sweden. Sweden didn't go for the lockdown and things have transpired pretty well there. We do have the cases of Mexico and Brazil, which also haven't locked down properly, but the experience there is not so good. So what I, what I get from this is it's actually the response. The, what needed to be done, and yes, I've got the benefit of hindsight, is that testing needed to be done urgently and isolated the people that were sick. And the governments needed to build hospitals because the biggest problem was perceived to be the hospitals being overwhelmed. Well, when you don't have enough hospitals or hospital beds, then if they'd spent a few billion dollars on building hospitals and training doctors and nurses, that would have come to a fraction, of probably less than 1% of the money that's been thrown at this problem. And it's a travesty of how many people have lost their jobs and how many businesses aren't going to come back. And the, the governments have responded poorly. Thanks, Dave. And are there any situations through your ex extensive experience that you can liken to what we're going through at the moment, whether that be through the, the, well, the it's shock a, it's, situation? It's a general disruption, as I was saying. So I think what's happening is, is that you, as you get in other circumstances, when you suddenly get the shock, things that were going to happen slowly start to happen quickly. 
And so you get the creative destruction side in economies happening a lot faster than they have happened otherwise. And we're seeing that now. We're also getting a lot of noise. We're also getting a lot of uncertainty. And pricing is completely haywire. And in that, there's a lot of opportunity. So you know, we've been very busy in this, this last period trying to fathom out where, where the normal earnings are and who's going to survive and what's the, what's the terrain like going to be like in the future. And there have been disruptions like this before in the past. This is just a particularly big one and creating lots of risk and, and, and lots of opportunity within it. And, it, and it, Dave, you said you mentioned that it's uncertain where we where we're heading from here. So, what's your view on the prospects for some of the major economies around the world which have taken such a hit? Well, the big the big picture, which everybody should be aware of by now, is that there's been economic war going on and the competitive nature of the economies. America has been winning that economic war far more than they realise or they admit themselves. And their advantage has been on their technology and their technology has gone all the way around the world and other people and other countries have benefited from it. But that technology has been sucking money from other economies and taking it back to America and they're not paying taxes in those other economies. And Europe hasn't really recovered properly from the global financial crisis and the destruction of their banks. So the only economy that's, that, that's competing is, is China. And so we've got currency wars, we've got trade wars, and now we're moving into technology wars. It's noteworthy that Intel is not competing with Samsung and TSMC, that's Taiwan Semiconductors. And yeah, the Huawei issue. This is a very nervous America that we've got, but actually, dominating the world in lots of different ways. It's, 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 a, it's a fascinating world to live in and watch it, all these things unfold. And they seem to be unfolding in slow motion, but it's all happening steadily and, and purposefully. So Europe is bouncing back from a, from a low base, but the emerging markets are struggling and China's doing quite well. And Dave, within Europe, it's obviously Quite, there's quite a disparity between the likes of Germany and then the southern European states. And now we've still got the hangover of Brexit to come. Are there any positive lights or bright lights coming out of Europe? Yeah, I think energy being cheaper is helping Europe. And I think as we go into ESG and the, the wind farms and the solar and all the green energy type things, Europe is pushing and going ahead with, and the cost curve there is dropping. So Europe is less dependent on Russian oil and energy prices are going to be lower for Europe, not just now, but also going forward as they go down the, the price curve on energy and that will help uh, Europe. So Europe, Europe's on a, on, a, on a rebound at the moment, but it can't compete with the American technology advantage. And so as, as we come out of this economic downturn and there's a lot of debate going on whether the wall of fiscal and monetary support is going to lead to hyperinflation, inflation, deflation, stagflation, 
What's your view on that and perhaps around the world as well? Because I, I imagine that it's going to be very different in different localities. Yeah, I, I'm worried about hyperinflation. You know, America chucked $700 billion at the global financial crisis and helped the banks and become easier and easier for them to spend other people's money because money's cheap. And now you've got modern monetary theory, otherwise being labeled by some people as the magic money tree. So they've been able to find a tree where money grows on it. And yeah, the politicians are queuing up to spend this money from the magic money tree and they're spending it now. So this cheap money is causing a major problem in valuations and a whole lot of other things. And inflation hasn't come through yet. And so that's a big debate and how's that playing out and how does it work? And we've been studying that and scratching our heads about it. And, you know, Milton Friedman's been debunked now because his theories aren't, aren't really coming through. But if we have a look at inflation, and inflation can be either demand pull or, or, or supply push. And what's been happening is that you've got demographics, you've got uh, the middle income people aren't getting their share of the pie. So the demand side is not really pushing. You also got the, the supply side, which is reducing inflation. And yeah, the supply side is because we become more efficient at producing whatever it may be, energy, food, clothing, all sorts of things are, are getting cheaper. But you've also got this QE, which make no error, this QE is just my printing money. But there's low interest rates in QE is making capital cheaper. So there's been an abundant supply of capital which has been deployed to increase production. And a clear example of that was the money that went into shale production in the States and what that did to the oil price. Created deflation in the in the oil industry and the oil price. So the money, the volume of the money is enable people to produce more and the easy access to that money by the big corporates increases production and supply. But you also got the price of that supply because interest rates are so low, the cost of that capital comes through into the cost of the item. And that with no pressure from labor to get a bigger share of it means that there've been disinflationary forces. I wouldn't call it deflation, but there've been disinflationary forces around. So inflation hasn't picked up, but I think it's just delayed and it's in the base and it's just the governments are getting too free and easy with this easy money and I'm more worried about hyperinflation, not just inflation, than I have been for a long time. And Dave, what about this fiscal support and the amount of debt that's hitting the, or being issued by governments around the world? Can they afford it? Obviously, it's easier for some than others. Well, debt, debt per se, is an interesting one because we've got a lot of economists and people look at debt levels and they say that you know, the economy can only take so much debt and too much debt and they're mostly looking at previous things. Debt per se is not a problem. One person's debt is another person's asset, and that asset is fine so long as the person's going to pay the interest and pay the capital on it. But in the, the case that you're mentioning now, these governments, the governments have got too much debt. And are they going to be able to pay it? Are they going to be able to fund it? And in the case of Europe in particular, the demographics are such, they've got so much pay, pay as you go type taxation, 
the demographics are going to stop them from being able to meet their obligations. And yeah, they continue to borrow. And you saw the, the EU is now starting to borrow money on, on their balance sheet. They don't have any income to pay this uh, money that they're raising. But that's okay. There's no interest on it. And of course, you don't have to worry about repaying the capital, apparently. So, you know, the clear case that they, they're going to continue borrowing while they can. And where's the money coming from? Well, the money's coming from QE. The governments are, are printing money. So it's, it's really a potentially major problem. And we may go straight into hyperinflation, not just inflation from this, from this mess. But at the moment, it's all the well. They're funding it from their own, own resources. And there's disinflationary forces out there, so inflation's not coming through yet. So the inflation, when it comes, could put the surprise strongly on the upside. And the governments can't afford it to, in my opinion, they can't afford it, but modern monetary theory says they can. They can continue to print money, it's okay. I don't believe it. And, and so what do you think the reaction from central banks will be then around the world? And so can you just play out what, what your, your view, how we move into this inflation and perhaps hyperinflation and what the reaction by central banks will be? Obviously, we're record low rates all over the world. Well, part of the, part of the competition, the competitive nature of the, the economic war that's been going on, when the US started to drop its interest rates, Europe had to drop theirs further to be competitive in the world. And they were able to drop their, their interest rates to a negative level, which was quite surprising. And they survived that. And although we have had the, the example of Switzerland being able to operate with negative interest rates for a long time now, and of course Japan with very low interest rates. But as the US starts to drop its rates lower, because it's also having a problem with its balance sheet and the borrowing, how does that have an impact on the rest of the world? Can we have all these interest rates at naught? It's a, it's a major problem. And I'm sure that the Fed's models have showed them that they can't increase interest rates. And one of the problems that the governments have got, they've now got so much debt that they're comfortable with interest rates at naught. But if interest rates were to go up, what's going to happen? Well, they're not going to be able to fund the interest rates if interest rates go up. And Powell basically gave a, a hint if not a full capitulation on that last week. When Powell came and said, well, you know, we're actually going to allow inflation to go above 2%. He's warning the markets, but don't expect interest rates. He's worrying about a wallow from the markets that if interest, that inflation picks up above 2%, that the Fed's going to come down with a hammer. Interest rates up. And he's pre-warning the people that if inflation goes above 2%, the Fed's not going to do anything about it. And I think that's because the Fed is scared to do anything about it because the consequences of increasing interest rates are going to be terrible for the economy. And they need a strong economy in order to be able to get the taxation to meet the government funding. Interest rates may be lower for much longer than we all thought. And that's part of the, one of the things that and we seem to have got wrong is that interest rates are low and we're worrying about inflation coming and maybe interest rates are going to go up. But maybe that scenario doesn't come through. Maybe inflation comes back and interest rates don't go up. And that has huge implications for valuations, etc. It's a crazy mixed up world we live in. 
free money. I think that's a great point to move on to market valuations there and and, and your view on, on how things have unfolded, particularly in the rebound this year. What's your view on on how all of the what we've just talked about, what impact company earnings and then how that might be reflected through equity market? I think we, just, we see what's going on fairly clearly. The asset markets have reacted to the lower interest rates in a different way, the bond market first and then the property market. And equities have been the laggard. So when you get a discount rate down below 2%, then everything starts to be worth a lot. And when you start discounting by naught, well, then everything's worth infinity. So you start to get some crazy prices coming through, but the equities haven't really got there yet. So compared with where interest rates are and where bonds are, equities are cheap. And then you should also be bear in mind that equities are about the easy to worry about. And as we've seen with property in different parts of the world, and here's your example to look at. Property also started to escalate and the cap rate came right down. But now rentals are under pressure and different sectors of property, they, the earnings or the rentals are going down. So property hasn't been a safe place to be. And we noticed that early in the, in the SA situation five years ago, and, and that's, that's played out. And we're going to get a similar thing in, in equities where you're going to get huge multiple expansion. But if the earnings are there, that's fine. But if the earnings are not there, then it's not fine. And within property, there's certain sectors of property that are doing quite well. You're in logistics, et cetera then most properties are doing well. But if you're in the old school commercials and retail and, and malls, then um, property's not fine. And I'll mention this, this is the private equity side and you go into areas of investment which have been doing famously because the, the trading banks have been selling it. So plantations and the buildings and infrastructure, those have been marketed to pension funds and insurance companies, etc., on cap rates, using current interest rates. So there's massive expansion in valuations because interest rates have been coming down. So infrastructure and private equity are bragging about huge returns by valuing at these new interest rates. But listed equities haven't, haven't gone into that bubble yet. And I'll put it, I'll put it to you this way. In equity, earnings growth, the opportunity, the potential for the earnings growth equals the risk of that earnings not being there, and that equity should trade at the same PE as a bond. And since bonds at 2% are 50 PE and at 1% they're 100 PE, then certain equities where growth is assured or the, the opportunity, the potential for that growth equals the risk of the earnings not being there or falling, then our equity should be on 60, 80, 80 multiples uh, around the world. And clearly it needs to be those companies that are going to not only survive this and survive other risks that come, but whose earnings are going to continue to grow. So I can make a case that the equities are actually still quite cheap here. 
So, Dave, on that note, I've just pulled up a slide for everybody to see on that William did for us recently at a presentation that has the PE, a share price of the S&P 500 and PE ratios at 14 times and 19 times. And so it does look quite a heady place to be. And obviously we've been driven by the tech stocks. I've had a few questions come through on the Q&A about the dominance of the tech around the world. Is this just going to get bigger? And, and from what you just said, they, they, the PEs can keep expanding because of the valuation, because of the um, cap rates and the discount rates. And so what's your view on the, on the larger tech companies, not only in the US, but in, in China as well? Well, they, they are dominating and they are expensive on certain valuation metrics, but on the one I just described to you, then they're still cheap. And a lot of them are still growing and, you know, they, you need to look at their cash flow and things like that rather than the earnings because they're not interested in earnings. They're still expanding market share and defending their turf and spending whatever it takes to defend that turf because they're in a winner-take-all battle. And uh, if you're in a tech company that's going to be a winner and survive this, then the share price will probably continue to go up. But they're not all going to survive, and it's very much doggy dog. And if you don't have just the threat of new products coming out, and uh, you've got the threat of government coming in and interfering, because the government's starting to get worried about these things, as they always have throughout history. When anything uh, starts to dominate its industry, as you saw with Standard Oil, and you saw with Howard Hughes, and you saw with AT&T, and you saw with Microsoft and, and Bill Gates being born before gone. So you, you know, you're going to get that now. So the governments feel threatened and they'll, they'll start to curtail the, uh, the dominance of these companies, and that'll impact on their valuations too. But at the moment, the momentum is huge in their favour. Scary stuff for me. Some I don't, uh, I don't believe in. Others, others we have in the portfolio. And within the global portfolios, you've got, you've got a few of the Chinese tech businesses as well. And do, do they look more attractive? Well, they've been cheaper than the others. So on a relative basis, it's been great and it's been good to be there. You know, we have Tencent in the portfolio and we have JD. And JD's been a fallbacker just over the last 12, 15 months or so. And there's also a runway for them to grow, both of them. They can grow the the earnings and the cash flow substantially from here. But as Icarus found out, um, you can't always fly into the sun. And so within within your global multi-asset strategy, given your comments, how have you been positioned through this period or coming into this period even? Well, this, the stable fund has um, about 16% in our global equity fund, and the global equity fund has been performing very well. It's also got 16% in the Ford International Fund, which is an asset allocation fund, also like the stable fund, worrying about inflation and absolute return. So the global equity fund has been fully invested through this period. And yeah, over the last 12 months, we're up over 17%, and the global index is only up about seven. So we've been getting over 10% alpha. And you know, how we how we getting that that alpha is we've been low in in, in oils and we've been low in in financials. I wanted to sell more financials in February March and I was selling quite nicely and then the market fell away. So I so wish we'd been able to sell those. We would have been about fifty sixty million dollars of financials that I would have sold if I'd had another week or two. 
14 shot apart and we would have had that money to buy at the bottom and we would have done even better. But in the Sport International Fund, uh, we were very worried about the fallout and we had uh, in the valuations and we had put protection. And the accountant uh, will tell you that we wasted the money because the market went down and then came back up again. So we've got a lot a lot wrong. One of our managers did really well. He rolled the puts on the way down. So he got the protection and he paid for them and he made a, made a profit at the end of the day. I, on the other hand, was worried about the bounce and from 2800, I started to sell some S&Ps protection on further downside because of the destruction of the economy seems really severe. But as the market went through 3,000, uh, S&P went through 3,000, I stopped selling that protection and went over 3,200, I started to buy it all back. But we did well by having that protection and one could look at it and say with the money, which was a huge amount of money, about $60 million spent on protection and that's about 4% of fund. That, that we got back in another way. Because we had the protection, we didn't have to sell or feel like we needed to sell to protect the capital shares, which had fallen a lot. So there are shares that we'd like to increase our equity waiting at the bottom. You want to buy when you've got cash. But if you've got too many shares and things are falling, you get, you get nervous and you, you worry about and you need to sell it down there. But by having the put protection, we didn't sell shares at the bottom. They actually encouraged us to do some buying. We did some nice buying at the near the bottom. And we bought commodity stocks and other sectors. And we waited and, we went and we've been able to sell some of the shares that we didn't want to be worried about. We've been able to sell them at 40, 50, 60% higher levels in the past four or five weeks than we would have if we'd sold sold them in the, in the fall. So the, the put protection gives you more flexibility and you can't just look at the direct cost on it. The Ford International Fund is above its beginning of year price and we've recouped, we've recouped what it cost us in that protection. So it's lowered the volatility of the fund and I wish we'd done a lot better. There are a lot of things we could have done better this year with things happening all over the place. But as you'll see from the score, we've done uh, we've done better than most. But I'm quite frustrated because we could have done so much better with the opportunity. Thanks, Dave. There's a, there, I've had a few questions coming through on how do we protect against in, inflation or hyperinflation. And one of the features of the fund has been your gold position, both in the stable fund and at the international fund. Do you, what are your thoughts on the gold price now? And is it still a, a good protection against inflation? Or ha, has the price run too hard? I've just pulled a, a chart up that shows where, where the gold price has gone to set against the level of assets that the central banks have been accumulating as well. So what's your view on, the, on, on gold yeah. and its use in the portfolio? Gold is a nice diversifier and it's also an insurance policy against hyperinflation. And we've had it about three, four percent in our funds for quite some time for that reason. Now with the risk of hyperinflation increasing, in my view, we're increasing the gold positions. Now, you know, we've, we've got physical gold and we also have 
gold and precious metal, gold and silver stocks. And in the South African situation, the quality of those mines are not there. You'll get huge gearing from them and they'll do really well if the gold price goes up. But it's not the sort of speculation which I think is right for the stable fund where it's retirement money and just trying to beat inflation and trying to beat cash, trying to beat inflation plus four. So, but we have increased our gold weighting. Our gold weighting is now much higher in the Ford International Fund, for example, we've actually taken it to 8% physical and we've got 4% in gold shares and we've got other metal shares there. So we're about 15% protected in the, in the International Fund. And if you take all the other funds through into the Stable Fund, Stable Fund's now sitting at about 9% directly or indirectly in gold or similar. So we're, we're getting on the front foot on the, on the, on the gold issue and where do I think it's going? I wouldn't be surprised to see it at 5,000. I think it's only just started. It's only just just recently gone through its previous high. And when you've got Powell saying that he doesn't mind if inflation goes above 2%, well, and you know, there's no other asset in town. A lot of the other assets are correlated down to one, particularly in a crisis. And gold is, is clearly a non-correlated uh, asset to the others. You know, every, every fiat currency ever created is eventually blown out and gone to naught. So gold is that real asset and there's a serious risk of Western economies depreciating their currency significantly here. And Dave, did, did you touched on the oil price earlier, but you had a very low weight in energy stocks in the global portfolios and in stable as well. What's your view on, on energy and on the oil price? Well, I think coal and, and oil are, are yesterday's they're dinosaur industries. They're really going to be overtaken by, by new technology and new ESG. And it's, it's, to me, it's criminal the way the governments have allowed the subsidies and the continuation of the old industries when there's been clear evidence that there's new ways of creating energy and they should have backed those and brought down the cost curve from 20 years ago, and they haven't. But now the momentum's there, and, and Europe, as I said, is, is, is chasing that further. So, no, I don't I don't think the oil price is going there. Obviously, it's got some uses, and it's there. You're seeing even Saudi trying to diversify from it and doing other projects in energy. They're worried about it. I think, the, yeah, the oil industry is not where, where we want to be. And we've been, been well out of that one and we want to stay out of it. Okay, and then moving on slightly to, to take a look at the uh, SA positions in the portfolio. And a, and a feature of the fund has been the, the large position in the R186 that was taken probably a couple of years ago now. And would you mind just touching on the thoughts behind the introduction of that position? And also, I've got a chart on the screen now that shows the yield curve shift that we've had in, in 2020, that has seen a, a steepening of the curve. And, it, and so one of the comments that William made recently, that it's been important to know which part of the curve you need to be on. Yeah, we got a lot wrong in the, in the last few years, but this is what we got right. And I think this year we got a lot, quite a lot wrong, but we're getting a good score from what we did right three and four and five years ago. Five years ago, we really downweighted property to, to next to nothing. 
and the few that we have are in logistics in the SA situation. But we've been positive on, SA has stood out from the rest of the world. The rest of the world's got these very low interest rates and SA doesn't. And we've been able to get a real yield in the bonds. And one of the reasons why people are worried about the bonds is because they don't know if the government's going to pay. Well, you've got a, a RAND portfolio and the government's going to pay you RAND, so you're still okay there. But I wouldn't want to go too far out. And it's been crazy that we've been an island of high interest rates in a world where interest rates are going down to naught. It's just been a question of time before the, the government woke up to that. And our Reserve Bank does a lot of things well and they do a lot of great things, but keeping interest rates high is not one of them. And they've done it to protect the brand and inflation and you know, things like that. Those are all Stolzian um, parameters and rules. And they're from a different era, like the Falk era. And so we've had an opportunity to have high real interest rates. And, and that's what we're trying to do is, is beat inflation. So we had that as a cornerstone of the portfolio. We didn't go too far out on the yield curve because we worried about getting paid and the, the fact that we might get capital uh, loss later on. And yeah, the 186 was right there and we've been playing the waterfall effect on the curve. So we've got 9.3% from the 186 this year to date. That's 14% annualized. And we've got uh, 12 12 and a quarter percent from the 186 over the last 12 months and 12.4 percent over the last two years. So it's been a big chunk of the portfolio safely achieving the mandate with what I believe was incredibly low risk because interest rates had to come down. And yeah, you know, it's a problem for those people who've been in cash and for those people in five year deposits. Because when the deposit matures, what, what rate are you going to get? Rates now are looking at five, five and a half. And they're going to go lower. Seen the rumors are out there, the Reserve Bank's actually selling rands for dollars. When the, when the rand is strong, they're actually putting money to reserves by selling the rand. That's new. That's, that, that's a completely different uh, paradigm. So instead of a strong rand policy, they're actually quite happy to protect the rand from strengthening too much and have the, have the rand weaken a bit. And I think we're into into that phase yeah. So interest rates will, will come down, so they're not going to keep interest rates up to keep the rand up if they were interfering in the currency market. So I think you're going to see interest rates come come lower. So unfortunately we may end up like the rest of the world where instead of a risk free rate we have return free risk. <laughs> and and so, so that's that's, a, that's been that's a very good part of you know that, that's been a very good and successful part of the portfolio and it's been been there for three years. And it shows that you can, if you buy the right asset, you can hold on to it. You don't have to duck and dive and trade to get a decent return. So, Dave, um, it, it is still a, a big feature in the portfolio, and and, and we do, we have a few other bonds, long, slightly longer dated bonds in the portfolio as well. So, what what are the risks to this portion of the portfolio? The one eight six. The risk is that interest rates go up. The risk is that you can get better returns elsewhere. The risk is that when, when we get to sell them, there'll be nothing else to buy at a decent decent yield. There's always risks out there. There's multiple risks. But the 
return at the moment at about 7.4%, and through the maturity with further interest rate before we saw, I still think we're going to get 8 percent 9% from those bonds, whereas you can't get that in cash. And the opportunity is going to be to move it down the, the curve and go a little bit further out and get more of the waterfall effect, and it'll be even more tempting as the, as the curve steepens. So I would expect the curve to steepen some more, but I'm comfortable being there for the moment. Things can change. They could change next week. I could change my mind next week. But at the moment, I think it's a very good, safe place to be in achieving the mandate. You know, if inflation's at three percent and we can get in nine percent there, that's that's a good portion of the portfolio getting two percent above benchmark. Okay, and let's talk a bit about the portfolio positioning there. And I've got the asset allocation slide up as at the end of June. You've got approximately thirty-two percent of the portfolio overseas now, it's probably more like 34 at the end of July, a big chunk of government bonds. So within the SAA market, what's attractive there? And perhaps in your answer, you can touch on your your prospects for the SAA economy and, and local market. Well, we've only got 4% of this, this stable fund in SAA businesses. And that's been the right thing to do. We like international equities because of valuation relative and the earnings prospects uh, relative to what's happening in SA. We've got the opportunity to be there. We can only be 40% in equities anyway. It's all very low on property, but property is getting more into local properties, getting into much better valuation, but we've still got reservations on the risk there. But SA equities are, are coming more into line and we are picking up in various places the funds that we have, we are picking up SA stocks. The banks, the banks in particular, I think, are cheaper and the dividends will come back. But I, you know, I, I worry about the rand. So with only 30 odd percent offshore, we, we need rand protection. And that's that's something, you know, you take took take about a long term view on things. What's going to happen to the rand? You know, from my, my point of view, the rand's going to 100, and uh, a lot of people get ooh and ah and shocked when you say something like that. But you know, 40 years ago, when we started this business, uh, a rand could buy you a dollar 30, or 32, I think it was. So you know, the rand's fallen 20, 20 plus times in in 40 years. So if it just carries on that trajectory in in, uh, in 40 years time, it's going to be 350 rand to the dollar. If you need to get to 350, you've got to go through 100 before then. So sometime in the future, and this is this is this is the this is the quandary, and this is the example I'm giving to some people. Pretty confident that the rand's going to 100. The trouble is, I've got no idea when. But it'll be somewhere out in the future. It may happen sooner than we think. It may happen later than you think. But these are the, the bigger picture trends which, which help you. We don't know what decimal place it's going to, the rand's going to be in three months' time. But then we've got a better idea what it's going to be in three years' time or five years' time. Ultimately, it's going to be there. So having an SA stock, we've got to be sure that that's, that SA asset or that SA company is going to compensate for that weak currency. And that's that's very important in the way we build the, the, the portfolio. Because the weak 
rand comes back into inflation, and inflation is part of the, the benchmark that we we have for the for the fund. We're trying to beat inflation, as all investors should be, and that's what we concentrate on: is beating inflation. Dave, you've you've been fairly pessimistic on the SA economy for some time. Could your view change? Are there any reasons to be cheerful or optimistic about how we may come out of the current malady? Well, if anything, it's worse, I'm afraid, Rob. You know, the big the big assets that this country's got in terms of its balance sheet and and the fact that the you know, debt is in rands, not in dollars or foreign currency, and the fact that the government pension fund is fully funded, that, those two big assets are being whittled away as the government borrows more in dollars and starts to lose money in the, in the government pension fund. So those things are are getting worse. And yeah, we're getting we're getting a hollowing out of, of, of the economy. You just have a look at the, the shares that are listed. Most of them are foreign-based or where they are in SA. They, they're looking at ways to move their businesses offshore. The quality of management in SA has deteriorated quite markedly over the last three, four years. The quality of the management of the companies that we can invest in. The choice of the number of companies is less. So no, I'm, I'm, I'm not that optimistic on, on the choices that we have. Okay, Dave, and um, I'm, I'm going to finish on a couple of questions on, on your investment approach and how you manage money. And, and you've touched on this a couple of times about beating inflation for the stable fund. And one of the things that, that we really love about the way Ford approach their investment portfolios is that they manage to strategy. And, you know, one of the investment objectives of the fund is to not lose money over a rolling 12-month period. And, you know, whilst we don't guarantee that, you've done an incredible job since inception of the fund of not losing money for investors over a 12-month period. I mean, is that is that definitely something that you think is a mindset and that you push through the investment teams at Port? Absolutely. Rule number one, don't lose money. Rule number two, don't forget rule number one. Compounding needs positive numbers, not negative numbers. And compounding is the powerful force. So, yeah, there are too many managers out there trying to compete and it's other people's money, so other, other people take the downside and they're competing for accolades on fancy returns. So, I think more than any other house, we would rather forego a potential upside to secure uh, less downside. And we don't always get that right. And, um, you know, Sassel's a case in point. But, yeah, the, the waiting there and, and, and how we diversify those things. And you know, risk risk comes in all sorts of shapes and forms. And losing money is the, is the main risk that, that we try and manage. It's not easy. It's not easy. There's so, so many left field things that can happen, like COVID and government legislation and different risks that can come out and completely annihilate an asset or ridiculous things that management do, buying buying assets too high and borrowing to do that. So it's yeah, it's it's a challenging game, which is why we love it and we try hard at it. And that rather than try and 
expect get expectations up and try and shoot for the stars like some managers do. We'd, we'd rather we'd rather be the tortoise. We'll let the hares run around. Much much safer being the tortoise. And Dave, with all this new social media influence and the constantly changing news flow, does that cause you to make alterations to the portfolio more frequently? Or, or do you still focus on the long-term investment merits of the uh, of the underlying securities? Well, it, we don't listen to other people's opinions. We, 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 we work on our own judgment. And when we've got a winner like a 186, we, we hold on to it. Having said that, we've been very active in the last eight months because the opportunity set is, is there and things are changing. And as I mentioned to you, gold, we're upweighting the gold, even though it's run, rather than taking profits, we're going with it because we see the risk expanding in that area. So, yeah, we've, we've been quite busy, particularly on the, on the international funds uh, in this last period. There's lots of gems that we've been able to pick up that nobody else wants and they've been chucking them out. And we think they'll be able to survive this and thrive this. Plus, there have been sector calls. Plus, there have been risks that we want to get out of. Yeah, we've been very busy this last uh, last six months. Well, but as you say, defending to the uh, to the noise in the market. What would your one piece of advice be to investors and to uh, kind of drown out some of this noise that's irrelevant? Well, concentrate on a on a longer term view and understand what you're trying to do. If you're trying to invest, then, you know, have a three to five year time horizon. If you're trying to speculate, well then speculate by all means. But understand what you are and have a good idea about what the risks are and what sort of your expectations are. And uh, you need to work hard and do your homework and uh, allow for different scenarios as to the way things may play out and be ready to, to cut your losses if things go the wrong way and not to sell too soon when things start to go the right way. I think that's one of the benefits that we had in this period. We, when things started to go well, we couldn't believe it. I mean, we got it wrong that the, that the markets were going to go to new highs. We had no idea it was going to do that, but we didn't sell because that was a possibility and we had our, we had our protection. So, um, yeah, one of the things we did right in the last six months is not to sell but to buy more as the market rose. Well, Dave, thank you very much. I'm, I'm going to wind up the call there. I just want to say thanks very much for taking the time to, to talk to us today. And also thank you very much for the work you've done on the portfolio since inception and how you've you know really served investors well over the last couple of years with some of the fantastic decisions you and the team have made. So thanks for joining us. Our pleasure, Rob, and thank you, Ned Group, and thank you for the investors for, for their support. And we're happy that we've been able to provide them with some decent returns above the promised expectations. Thank you all. And for everyone who joined us today, thanks very much. And quick reminder that we do have a multi-manager investor day tomorrow morning and towards the uh, on Thursday evening, we do have another session with Maya Fisher-French on retirement. So please dial into those and thank you for spending the time with us. Have a good day. Goodbye. Negroup Collective Investments is an authorised collective investment scheme manager in terms of the Collective Investment Schemes Control Act.
NetGroup Investments does not provide advice on financial products and will only give you factual information. For further details on our funds and to view our terms and conditions, please visit nedgroupinvestments.co.za.